This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Seth O'Neill, an Associate Professor of Epidemiology at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. We'll be discussing control strategies for Tania, Solium, sister psychosis in people and pigs in Peru. Welcome, Dr. O'Neill. Good morning, Sarah. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Let's talk about pigs first. Why are pigs such an important global food source? Yeah, so that's a great question. Sort of on a global scale, we've seen an increase with development and increase in the wealth and conditions in lower and middle income countries in particular. And that's led to a large increase in demand for high quality meat protein like pork. And that's, of course, led to increased production. That production is happening both on the large scale and the big farms like the granges that we're accustomed to in North America in Europe, but also on a very small scale where we have these small landowners in rural areas raising just a few pigs for subsistence level agriculture, essentially. And locally on those small farms, it's not just that pigs are a good source, an important source of pork. It's also that those uh, pigs are an important part of the economy and the cash economy. So pigs are raised there. People buy them as piglets or have their own piglets. And essentially they let them roam around scavenge for food and so it's a very low input source of raising animals and in six months to 12 months those pigs are large enough to sell and that's a great source of cash in these cash limited areas and the, the pigs themselves are also sort of a, a, a piggy bank a savings bank if you will where people will slaughter the pigs and sell them when they need cash uh, so moments like what for school supplies or for dealing with accidents um, that kind of thing so they're both uh, for, for meat, uh, but they're also for a cash economy and savings. So you can just take a pig and let it loose and it will find enough to eat that it thrives and grows. That's interesting. Yeah, that's how people raise them. Yeah, they, they let them run and scavenge. And thievery is not an issue? Are they branded? How do they protect their pigs from your neighbor's pigs running around? It's funny because pigs actually know their homes and um, will often return to their homes and people will sort of encourage that behavior by, you know, feeding them table scraps. And that brings the pigs back uh, to home. Typically at night, they come back after roaming and will stay at the home. And they're also herding animals, the, the pigs are. So they, they group together, they move together, and they come back. Ah, so many cultures and religions don't even allow for eating pigs. Is that historically because pigs have had issues with parasites? It's an interesting question to think about. Um, there's parasites like uh, Trichinella and Tineasolium, which we're going to talk about, um, which cause severe disease um, in humans and are a food safety problem. But whether or not you know, that's the reason that um, some, some cultures and religions have stayed away from them, it's not really sure, but it's potentially related. Yeah. Okay, so what is a Taneosolium? So Taneosolium is a, a parasite, and it's in particular what's called a cestode parasite, which is a segmented flatworm. Most people would commonly know this as a, as a pork tapeworm. And it's a parasite that infects both humans and pigs, and it, in fact, its life cycle depends on being able to have different life stages of the parasite developing in both humans and pig hosts. And there's really three main life stages for this parasite. There's the adult worm, which is the one that uh, produces eggs and lives in the in in human intestine. That's what we commonly think of the, the tapeworm, the two to three meter worm living inside someone's intestine. And then there's the egg stage, uh, which are shed by that adult, and those um, are shed in the human feces and contaminate the environment. And then there's what's called the metacestode stage, or the larval stage of the parasite. And that infects the muscles and other tissues um, of pigs. And you would see these in pigs as uh, sort of small fluid-filled sacs, maybe a centimeter or less, that have the, the parasite within them. And the life cycle depends on all three of those stages occurring. Can this parasite be found in domesticated livestock other than pigs? There, there's thousands, actually, of species of tapeworms. Um, Tinea solium only infects pigs and humans, and to a lesser extent, dogs, where consumption of dogs occurs. But in terms of other livestock, no. There are other tapeworm species that infect cattle. Tinea saginata is, is that one in particular, but that's, not, that's less of a health concern for humans. And why are pigs so prone to having this parasite? 
I don't think it's so much a question of pigs being prone to this parasite. It's more that the parasite itself has developed within this context of this predator-prey relationship between human and pig, and it sort of takes advantage of, if you will, evolutionarily of that relationship, and also how we raise pigs in close proximity as a food source. Um, so it's, it's the parasite has specifically developed within that context, and so it targets that. But there are aspects of pig behavior and how we raise pigs that lead to the conditions for pigs to become infected. So the first is that pigs are coprophagic, um, which means they seek out and consume human feces and other feces, and that's to um, get the minerals, particularly iron, that's in, in the stool. And they'll actually compete um, among them, and there's sort of a pecking order, uh, apparently, on, on which pigs are able to access the feces. But in impoverished rural areas that we were talking about, these sort of small landowner scenarios, there's also less resources there for sanitation. And so open defecation is common where people are defecating outside. And because people are raising pigs in the sort of scavenging way, those pigs have access to feces. They desire the human feces. They consume the feces. And when those feces have tapeworm eggs, that's how they, they get the, the parasite infection. In your article, you mentioned cystocytosis and taniasis. What are they and how are they related to tanian solium? So those are the conditions. Those terms refer to the conditions of being infected. So teniasis is the condition of having the adult intestinal tapeworm infection. That's called teniasis, or the disease would be called teniasis. And cystocytosis is when you have that metacestode larval stage infection in the tissues. That disease would be called cystocytosis. And, okay, we get how pigs get it, but how is it? transmitted to people yeah so the so yeah i described a bit how pigs get infected they forage they consume feces that contains eggs and these eggs come from a human that's been infected with the adult tapeworm so those eggs once they develop into uh, the larval stage in the pig uh, when that pig is slaughtered and the human consumes um, infected pork or contaminated pork that cyst that i described inside the meat which is likely not visible to the person consuming it, um, that will hatch inside their intestine. This sort of the baby tapeworm, if you will, will emerge and latch onto the um, intestinal lining and then grow into that adult that then will lay eggs and keep that cycle going. It's also important to mention, though it's not part of the life cycle that keeps um, the parasite transmitting and its life stages going, people can become infected and get sister cirrhosis, that is the tissue stage, if they ingest eggs accidentally and fecal contamination. So this is a dead end from the you know, point of view of the parasite because that um, parasite, the larval stage, is not going to be consumed. But from the human standpoint, it causes important disease. And that's, that's really primarily why we, we're interested in this um, parasite and, and preventing the, the harm it caused because humans can get sister cirrhosis. And um, clearly people aren't deliberately eating feces, uh, human feces, so um, is it, it gets on their hands or something? How does that happen? Yeah, these eggs that you described that, um, you know, someone who has a tapeworm sheds these eggs in their stool, and the eggs are really sticky. Um, they can stick to hands, they can get in water sources, they can get on food. Um, and so they'd be transmitted Sort of that fecal oral route that other, um, you know, more familiar diseases like, you know, Shigella or Salmonella might be. Yeah, it's an accidental ingestion of fecal contamination. I see. Do people and pigs get the same symptoms, or are there different symptoms once you have this parasite in any form? So only humans get tinnitus. The pigs don't actually get that intestinal stage of the worm. So for tinnitus, it's not really a relevant question for. For sister psychosis, it's hard to say uh, what what the pig is experiencing, really. But yeah, pigs can have some of the symptoms that we see in humans that are of concern, like seizures, and we can talk about that um, later. Okay. And what are the signs that someone might be infected with these parasites? So again, humans have two two forms that they can get. They can get the teniasis, which is the intestinal infection with the adult tapeworm. And people who have that typically have mild symptoms or, or no symptoms at all. And those mild symptoms might be like transient 
um, GI uh, gastrointestinal upset. Uh, but typically, people don't even know they're infected. They may pass small segments of the worm. So remember, the testode is a segmented flatworm, and the segments themselves can pass in the stool and are sometimes visible. So if someone sees them, they might know. These segments kind of look like if you've had uh, cats or dogs before and you've seen little white segments um, within within their stool, you'd know kind of what it looks like in humans. But because people don't know they're infected and because the eggs that they're shedding are dangerous to humans, tinnitus is a dangerous condition um, in terms of public health and infecting others. So it's something that we take very seriously. Um, the other way that people can become infected is having sister cirrhosis, so that's the cysts developing in their body tissues. And that really depends on where those cysts develop. For the most part, most of the body, if the cyst develops, for example, in the muscle tissues, there may be no symptoms at all, and the person may never know they've been infected. But symptoms do and can occur when the infection happens in the brain, and that's a condition called neurocystercercosis, and that's um, the main uh, health concern with this parasite. So tell us more about this neurocystercercosis. So again, it's when the, the parasite larval stage infects the, the brain um, or the spaces around the brain um, in the central nervous system. Um, and it's really, we talk about neurocystercercosis as if it's one thing, but it, it really presents itself as almost the neurocystercercosis, like many presentations. And that, that's because the disease is really dependent and how it manifests is dependent on uh, how many cysts form within the brain, where they are, how big they are, um, and what sort of their stage of development is. So these cysts kind of grow and develop within the tissues and, and eventually die. And that can also modify and, and, and change how the disease is presenting. So if the, if the parasites were in, within the brain parenchyma, so this is what we think about as the brain tissue, uh, it's called parenchymal cystercercosis. And the symptoms there are typically, the main one is seizures. So particularly when this parasite dies and the body recognizes it causes inflammation as it attacks that infection, seizures can result. And that's really the main presentation that we think about with neurocystercercosis. But chronic headaches occur, brain inflammation, encephalitis occurs, cognition um, issues occur. It can present in many ways. And then there's an form of the neurocystercercosis that occurs when the cysts actually form not in the brain tissue itself, but in, in the spaces and in the fluid that, that circulates around the brain. And that's called extraparenchymal cystercercosis. And, and that actually can present more severely. It can have um, a condition called increasing intracranial uh, pressure. That would occur when the cyst would sort of block that flow of fluid. And that's an emergency that can cause the brain stem to herniate and potentially leading to death. So those are the two sort of main presentations of neurocystercercosis, but really it can present in many different ways. Is there any treatment for it or any form of cystercercosis for that matter? Yeah, there, there is. Um, we have some treatments. The treatments are imperfect. If you can uh, imagine, the, I talked about the inflammation occurring and seizures being, seizures being triggered when the parasite dies in the brain. So treating if you're treating uh, and using a drug that might kill that parasite, you can trigger inflammation that can then trigger worsening symptoms in the patient. So decisions to treat need to be taken on an individual basis. And again, depending on how many cysts there are, where they are, their life stage, et cetera. So there's antiparasitic drugs that will kill the cysts. And there's also uh, drugs like anti-epileptic drugs and anti-inflammatory drugs that can help reduce the symptoms that are associated with the infection. And then in the case of the extraparenchymal cysts, those are the ones um, that develop, you know, in the fluid and spaces around the brain tissue. Um, in, some, in some instances, sort of specific cases, surgery may be involved, and that could be um, surgery like placing a shunt to re reduce some of that pressure that's forming within the brain cavity, or in some sort of very specific, not super common instances, surgery can actually take the cyst out. What types of tests are used to identify and diagnose this infection? So for the neurocystercercosis, you really need some form of brain imaging. And the ones that are typically used are either a CT, commuted tomography scan of the, of the head, or um, a magnetic resonance imaging, so the MRI of the brain. And those will help you visualize the cyst. 
but also give information about, again, the number of cysts, how big they are, where they are, and their life stage, which can help you think about treatment indications and, and how to treat people. So really, uh, the neuroimaging is uh, really important for diagnosis. There are some blood tests that can be done, and those can look for things like parasite antigens or, or antibodies against them. And those have a role in sort of supporting the diagnosis of what you see on, on imaging. And in some cases, they're used to indicate whether someone gets imaging or not. And then for the other, the other disease, um, tenaiosis in, in humans, the intestinal tapeworm infection, um, the typical tests are, are looking uh, at the stool and using microscopy to look for parasite eggs or segments. And then there's some other tests that are used more often in the research setting that look for, you know, different markers of, of infection like antigens or, or DNA. Cystosarcosis is considered a neglected tropical disease. What are the other neglected tropical diseases and why is it important to make people aware of them? Yeah, that's, that's a really important question. So neglected tropical diseases are really a, a diverse set of, of diseases and conditions that cause a large public health burden um, around the globe and, and particularly in areas, lower middle income countries that are still uh, developing. And their impact in terms of the disease and the burden that they cause is, is larger uh, in many ways than the attention that they get and the resources they get there. They tend to not to be know about as much, discussed as much, um, or funded as much. And, and as such, they remain largely without intervention. Um, most of these diseases have um, some preventable nature to them that could be worked upon, but as the name suggests, they're typically neglected. So the World Health Organization has prioritized um, a diverse group of about 20 different conditions, and these are bacterial infections and parasitic infections and even things like snake bite, uh, venomous snake bite um, that would fall into this category. Speaking of WHO, um, apparently, and they feel that neglected tropical diseases are of enough concern that they've created a roadmap to reach goals. Um, what's in this roadmap? Yeah, so the, the roadmaps have been developed a couple of different times, and they just recently published their newest roadmap, which is essentially a set of targets uh, which they hope to reach and, and hope to promote countries to act upon to reach uh, with respect to these diseases. So the new targets and the new roadmap are, are for uh, the year 2030. And there are things like um, reducing by 90% the number of people requiring treatment for neglected tropical disease, having at least 100 countries, um, having eliminated at least one neglected tropical disease, um, things like that. So there, there are these large um, ambitious targets to hopefully um, pursue and get governments interested in, in, in addressing. For Tibia solium, it is one of the neglected tropical diseases that's on that list. And the targets for this in particular are related to the number of countries with intensified control programs in place. So essentially, currently, there aren't any countries that really have large-scale established control programs going on specifically for this disease. And WHO is um, interested in promoting this to occur. And so over the next uh, 10 years or so, they want to see countries step up and, and, and adopt and adapt and implement some of these control strategies. That's what's in the roadmap. What's been done previously to try and control tanium solium? When I was young, people talked about pigs having parasites and that you had to cook pork thoroughly. And then later, it seemed people were saying that it was no longer true and you didn't have to worry about that. Do pigs not have tania solium in North America? So, yeah, essentially in North America right now, pigs don't have tania solium. And that relates to the conditions, again, of how transmission occurs. So this, this parasite thrives in those environments in which pigs have access to and can consume human feces. And with development um, over time and improving how we raise pigs, and particularly raising pigs in these sort of large, cleaner farms, cleaner, maybe maybe is relative in, in particular what you're talking about here. I mean, not being exposed to tapeworm eggs and feces. So as that condition has changed with development, and this has happened, you know, not just here, but also in Europe and in places in China, that the disease is starting to go away because it doesn't have the conditions to transmit. But still, there's many places around the world 
where those conditions exist. In terms of other strategies to control apart from development, there are a number of different approaches that could be taken, and these range from education to behavior change, health promotion kind of activities to um, application of antiparasitic drugs in humans and pigs or vaccines. And there are these have been primarily applied in the research setting. And that's exactly the, the kind of work that uh, our study that, um, that we'll be talking about was looking at. So you carried out your study in Peru. How big a problem is the parasite there? It's it's kind of hard, you know, from the from this standpoint. It, here in the North America, we kind of consider it as sort of a strange or unique or or not common disease. But we do have um, people with this infection here in Peru. It's it's fairly common. It's common to the point where if you have conversations with people, say, you know, neighbors, taxi drivers, uh, family members, they're likely to know somebody who's had neurocystisarcosis and um, and are familiar with the disease in that way. So more specifically, as you get into the rural areas where the, the disease is really transmitting frequently and commonly, there there's a couple of different ways we've looked at it. We've done some studies in, in adults in some of these rural areas, small villages, where if you look at CT scans of, of heads uh, of people, 10 to 20% of people will have signs that they've been infected. This is infection of the brain. And that leads again to most of those cases actually don't have symptoms or severe symptoms, but many of them do end up having things like uh, seizures. And in the areas where we do our study, about 45% of people who have epilepsy, that is recurrent seizures, they also have cysts in their brain that appear to be the cause of that epilepsy. So it's, it's a common problem and it causes fairly severe morbidity uh, in humans. Is it a bigger problem there than in other places? And where is it most endemic? So it's pretty much endemic um, in most places where you find those conditions that we talked about, pigs roaming free and having access to human feces. You, you tend to find the parasite there. This occurs in many parts of Latin America, Africa, uh, Asia, and um, particularly in the rural rural regions of those countries. In sub-Saharan Africa, there um, are some reports of some very high transmission areas where we see more disease than we do perhaps in, in, in Peru um, and other parts of Latin America. You previously did a pilot study in Peru. How did those findings affect how you approached your current study? So uh, in addition to that pilot study, really the study that, that we're going to talk about today, that's really been informed by by really three decades of work and research by um, what's known as the Sarcosis Working Group of, in Peru, which is a network of investigators. So there are many people involved in this research. Um, and we, like, like most science, we build on each other's results and, um, and, and collaborate to, to address the problem. And these studies have worked to uh, you know, understand the scope of the problem and how transmission occurs, and also have come up with some of the potential ways to intervene that, that we are trying. I think there's a bunch of different lessons that are pertinent to this study that I would um, say that we applied in the study. And, and the first is, you know, while long-term development is certainly the goal, and I'm talking about um, things like infrastructure improvement and reduction in poverty, that is where we should all be working for, and that will help take care of the disease. But in the short term, there are things that we can do while development is underway uh, that can reduce disease and suffering. So that's the first sort of main lesson. Other things that have informed the study are that we found that there's pockets of transmission, what we call as clusters, clusters of transmission that occur within villages. It's not that the disease is happening uniformly, um, either across villagers or within villages or across regions. It, human and pig infection cluster together, and that's something that we can potentially take advantage of in, in our control interventions. The third thing that I would say is relevant is that Pig infection is visible. It can be visible. Most light infections and most infections, in fact, will not be seen. That is, if you cut open a pig and it's infected and it has two or three cysts in the whole carcass, you won't, you won't see it and it'll likely get consumed. But some of the pigs, the heavily infected pigs, are really, really, really apparent. So they slaughter the pig and it is immediately apparent that the, the meat is full of cysts. Um, we can talk about hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of cysts. That is something that we can use, that visible indication. And also pig 
tongue when the pig is alive, if they're very heavily infected, we can look at the tongue and feel the tongue and, and see these cysts at times when the pig is still living. And that can help us indicate where these clusters of infection are. So that's another point. We, we use heavily infected pigs as a visible, readily apparent indicator of where clusters of transmission might be. And we take advantage of that. I think a couple more points that we've learned over the years. One is that, you know, to two host parasites, so you can think about putting your resources towards treating humans or treating pigs if we're, we're talking about chemotherapy. And while, while both strategies could work, there's reasons to target human tenaisis in my mind. And, and, and one is that it's prolific. These tapeworms produce tens of thousands of eggs a day over a course of infection that can be years, years long. So they, they have the potential to cause a lot of further infection in both humans and pigs. So targeting them makes sense. And also from a practical aspect and practical point of view, in many rural areas where these diseases occur, they're sort of far away from government um, attention and government resources, and veterinary resources are fairly scarce. So having the veterinary infrastructure in place to deal with pigs is not, not always um, available. I, I think that's, those are the main, um, the main things that we've learned over the years to that informed this new study. So both ring treatment and mass treatment were used, investigated in your study. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, so the, we did. The study was, was comparing um, what we refer to as ring treatment, which is a, a strategy that tries to take advantage of this clustered transmission that I was talking about, the proximity of human and pork and, and pig infection, and mass treatment, which is um, what you might think it would be and what it sounds like. This is providing chemotherapy or uh, chemotherapeutic drugs to either all people or all pigs or both, um, regardless of um, the sort of their underlying risk. So mass drug administration or mass treatment would be something like how we did it in the study, which is going to door to door um, on a, you know, every six month basis and, and providing antiparasitic drugs to people. So everyone gets it or has the opportunity to take it. Ring treatment is basically a strategy in which we use surveillance. That is, we look for these heavily infected pigs that can be either detected uh, upon slaughter, because you see the cysts, or uh, by examining their tugs while the pigs are alive. And when you find those um, heavily infected pigs, the ring treatment is just treating people who are nearby. So focusing your treatment resources only on those areas where you see a heavily infected pig. And we used a strategy in which we treated people within, that lived within 100 meters of where that heavily infected pig was found. So the main difference is mass treatment is you sort of treat everybody uniformly. Ring treatment is trying to provide treatment to clusters of infection within community. Tell us briefly about your study and how you went about conducting it. Yeah, so our study um, was, the objective of the study was to try to look at these different options and try to see which would be more effective or the effect that they would have. And really the idea was to in, do these studies in a way that would inform future public health interventions. In other words, we would like to see, as WHO would like to see, um, control strategies adopted. So we conducted a study in which we looked at 23 villages in northern rural Peru. And this is a um, population of about 10,000 people and about 3,000 sort of back backyard raised pigs at any given time. And we divided those uh, villages up into three different groups. And those groups received either mass treatment. So that was where we went uh, to each house every six months um, and offered um, anti-parasitic drug to treat tinnitus, and we did that for two years. Or the other villages received, the other groups received um, one version or another of ring intervention. So one was ring treatment in which we went through the villages every four months and looked for pigs, that is we caught all the pigs and looked at their tongues. And when we found a heavily infected pig, that is a pig with a cyst on its tongue, we provided uh, the antiparasitic drug to people who lived within 100 meters. And we did that every four months for two years. Ring screening was similar. We had the same kind of surveillance where we went through and looked at tongues every four months. But rather than just providing the drug to people within 100 meters, we collected stool 
and uh, looked at the stool under a microscope and using another test to look at antigens and only treated those people who we knew to be infected. So that's three different groups. Those are all based on different ways to provide the antiparasitic drug for tinnitus to humans. And we also split those, each of those groups up into two, and we added um, treatment of the pigs um, with the antiparasitic drug oxfendazole, which, which treats the cysts. So that was in half. So we had six groups total. And how those pigs were treated in each group depended on, you know, whether they were part of a ring intervention or a mass intervention. So in the mass treatment, we just provided the, the oxfendazole to all pigs. And in the ring strategies, we provided the oxfendazole drug only to those pigs um, living within 100 meters of where that other pig was found. So that was the, the general structure, six study groups, and we followed and did this intervention for two years. And then we measured the effect of our study by taking blood samples from the entire pig population and looking at, in particular at the pigs that were born in the study villages during the time that we were conducting the study and looking for antibodies. And over time, we were looking for changes in antibodies, how many pigs, what proportion of pigs had antibodies as an indicator of um, how our interventions were doing. So you looked at pigs, you focused on pigs in villages and not in slaughterhouses. I guess that's because there aren't actually slaughterhouses in these rural areas, or is there some other reason? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, in these rural areas, pigs are raised sort of in the backyard, and they are often slaughtered in the backyard. There is no formal existing meat inspection. Again, this is a neglected tropical disease, rural sort of isolated regions that don't have um, much attention from from government, essentially. So no formal meat inspection happens. You mentioned in your study you looked at pigs' tongues to see if they were infected. Was there any other way you checked? That, that was the main reason, the main way we checked. Um, we had our teams um, go through the villages door to door, ask for permission, and then literally chase down the pigs, which are basically sort of semi-feral, if you will, free-roaming pigs, and it's a lot of work to catch them. But when we would catch them, we would temporarily restrain them physically, that is, hold them, um, and then we'd open the mouth and feel the tongue and, and look at the tongue, particularly the underside of it, to see whether or not it has cysts. So that's that's how the tongue exam works. And we actually learned that from the villagers themselves who um, often use tongue inspection prior to sale as an indicator of whether that carcass, the pig carcass later will have a lot of cysts or not. And that influences the value of the meat and whether or not it's sold. We also gave the opportunity to villagers sort of to self-report. So instead of us going through and just finding cysts on tongues, we you know, told villagers that if they, they slaughtered a pig and found it heavily infected with cysts, they could let us know and we would come verify and then um, do the ring intervention. So when you found infected pigs and you gave them some kind of treatment, all of them, or were some pigs controlled groups that you didn't do anything with? Essentially, when when you find a, an infected pig, it's, it's a food safety hazard. It's a human health hazard. So we're ethically obligated to, to do something about that. And we um, essentially offered two, two things to people. We offered to treat the pig with oxendazole, um, which is effective in killing the cysts in, in pigs. Or if people did not want to uh, treat it, we also offered to just purchase the pig and remove it from the community. And so people chose those options for different reasons. But um, essentially, we didn't leave these pigs in the community to cause further disease. I see. So does an infected pig, and they opt for treatment, and the pig is treated, um, is it actually safe to eat after being treated? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. The, um, a lot is known about the drug that's used, oxendazole, and what's called its withdrawal period. And so the, the drug itself, is cleared from the, the, the carcass of the pig, or the tissue of the pig, about three weeks after it's been treated. And so from that uh, point of view, in terms of drug clearance, yes, it's safe. The drug is also very effective in killing cysts in most of the, the pig, in, in the pig's mus muscles and you know body tissues. 
other than the brain, it's very effective. Some cysts persist in the brain. And so if people decide that they want to treat the pig, we tell them you have to wait three weeks before you would slaughter this pig and eat it. And that you also have to be careful not to, not to consume the brain because there might be living cysts in there. Yeah. The, the, the carcass itself, the pig meat, the pork after you treat it is, is safe to eat in terms of infection. It may not look the same. And in heavily infected pigs, the, the scars that result from killing all these cysts in the pig often make it less palatable, if you will. And so heavily infected pigs after they've been treated may, may not be consumed just for that preference reason. Yeah. What about cooking? Does proper cooking have any impact on this? It does. Um, if you were to reach proper temperatures, if you were to cook um, and have the pork reach 160 degrees uniformly and throughout, um, that should take care of the cyst um, and should kill it. You know, that said, it's hard to do. It's, it's hard to tell when pork is uniformly reached that temperature. I think we all experience that. It also depends on how people prepare the meat. So if you're you know, preparing a, a dish that has sort of large pieces or uh, a pork or, or pork that's near the bone, those places may not reach the same temperature. And so cysts that are still infectious could, could persist. You know, people in this area in Peru where we work, they eat, uh, the primary way they eat pork is chicharron, um, which is you know, essentially boiled and deep fried in chunks. And you would think that that kind of treatment would definitely work. But it seems that transmission still occurs. What were your findings about the difference between treating pigs versus humans for this parasite and which is the better approach? I think you mentioned that for logistical reasons, it was better to treat humans, um, people. Is, is that right? So we, we chose to, in all of our study arms, we chose to treat humans. So it's not that we studied and could tell from our study which, if it was better to approach in a pig-only or a human-only way. What we did is treated all humans for the reasons I mentioned, both because um, teniasis is that direct cause of disease in pigs and humans. It's prolific. In other words, it causes a lot of infection or has the capability to cause a lot of infection. And then also that practical question of not only that it's hard to have the resource, veterinary resources to treat pigs, but also that the pig population turns over very quickly. And so interventions in the pig population, you're constantly seeing new, new groups of pigs that would have to be treated, whereas in humans, it's relatively stable in comparison. So I can't really say whether there is a, you know, pig only or human only is beneficial because our study didn't really look at that. And what about reinfection? So you get this parasite, you get treated for it, the parasite's gone, then you eat another pig and have the same infection? Yeah. Yeah, people definitely do become reinfected, and we, we see that. Um, there doesn't seem to be an effective immunity for teniasis in humans, um, so people do get repeat infections. And often you see those repeat infections, again, in these sort of areas where, you know, sanitation may be less and maybe the you know, poverty may be greater, and um, pigs are having more access to feces and they're being consumed regardless of what they look like, even if they're seen to be infected, they get consumed anyway. So in those scenarios, reinfection is common. So um, possibly repeating ourselves a little bit here, but of all the intervention strategies used, um, was there one that um, stood out the most, found to be the most effective? There wasn't. And actually this was one of the um, really important findings um, of the study. So all three of the studies, when you look at antibodies in the pig population in terms of you know, transmission, they all showed about 65% reduction over two years. And that's regardless of whether um, you know, we, we treated everybody, we treated only people in rings, or we screened people in rings and treated only those who were infected. They all worked. And, and that's really good news in terms of scaling up and implementing some of these strategies to prevent diseases, public health programs. There's options. There were some differences between them. And one of the main reasons for a targeted approach, which is these ring approaches versus a mass approach, is to limit the amount of, of drugs that you use. So by only treating people within the rings, you, you don't have to give as much drug to the population. Again, in, in the mass 
intervention, you're giving drug to everybody. And typically in these villages, you might have two to 3%. So two to three out of every hundred people might have tinnitus at a given time. That's sort of a typical scenario. And if you're treating everybody, you're treating 97 people who, who aren't currently infected for those two or three who are. With the ring interventions, we were trying to improve that. So although we had the same effect in all three of those main um, interventions, when we did mass treatment, we gave drug to about 90% of the entire population. When we did ring treatment, it was only about 20% of the population. And then when we did ring screening and only treated those people we knew to be affected, we only treated 1% of the population. So a lot less drug was used with the ring approaches and particularly with screening. Okay, so other than having to use more drugs and different um, approaches, were there any other disadvantages of using one strategy over another? Yeah, I think the main difference is between these and you know, try to look this in context. These are options essentially for strategies that might work and they should be perhaps tailored to what the resources are that are available in those regions. So for ring interventions, probably, you know, the main advantage there, as I mentioned, is that you don't use as much drug. There, there also is some advantage, I believe, that we haven't, you know, really measured this, in that when you treat just small groups of people, that the message there is that, you know, this group has more risk and uh, people should, should be taking a drug because of that risk. And it helps it reinforce this idea that, hey, we found an infected pig and the cause was a, a human who has the tapeworm. And so we need to treat the human. It re reinforces that life cycle to villages who, who otherwise would not connect these things. Um, so that's one of the advantages there. The disadvantages is that you have to have some sort of surveillance um, in practice where you either go out and actively find pigs that are heavily infected or some sort of system in place in which people can report those infections to you so that you can actually intervene in, uh, in those rings and give the drugs or screening as needed. On the other side, the mass, um, mass treatment, it's really familiar. It's an approach that's used for many parasitic drugs. It may be, again, less efficient than in other uh, parasitic infections because there's so few people uh, as a proportion that have tinnitus to make that, you know, this disease endemic. It's only you know, a couple percent of the population typically. So there may be a lot of waste in that in that way. And it's not just waste. You're also, you know, potentially, although we use a safe drug, you're potentially um, exposing these people who, who may not need the drug to the potential adverse effects from those drugs. The other thing that's been noted with some of these uh, mass treatment programs is that participation can decline over time. And that may be related to, again, the sort of perception of risk. If, if everybody's being treated over and over again, why do, why do I individually have to do it? And for other, other diseases, so we didn't see this here, um, there's sort of mixed um, evidence for other parasitic infections of whether mass drug administration um, is effective in the long term and sustainable. Um, so those are some of the disadvantages of the mass site. Was there anything that surprised you? So in, in doing the study, I think the results, we expected to see an, a, a good control effect with all of the approaches that we took. I think what was surprising to me was that they were equivalent in the context or had similar control effect in the context of using such a different amount of drug between the different ones. Um, I thought the amount of drugs applied was um, quite a stark difference and still have the same effect. So that, that was interesting. And, and somewhat surprising. The other sort of surprising uh, result was that within the ring screening um, study group, so this is the one where we offered diagnosis and only treated um, people who were known to be infected, that had the most rapid decline in transmission in all of them. And you would think that by applying less drug, because this applied the, the least amount, that that wouldn't be the case. But in fact, it had the most rapid decrease. And this may be related to the fact that once we identified someone with a tapeworm infection and treated them, we went back to verify whether they were cured. And if they were not, we retreated them. So there may be some 
treatment effect or in effect, in other words, the drug not being completely effective, that if you're using a mass approach where you're not diagnosing, you're just applying the drug to people who you think might be infected, they may have persistent infections that can keep transmission going. So those are, I think, maybe the two, two sort of surprising results that we had. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Is there a pig vaccine for this? I, uh, we haven't talked about vaccines, and, and would a vaccine for a parasite work? Yeah. So there is, um, there has been work done on vaccines and parasites, and a few different ones developed in the research setting, and one even now limited on a limited basis, but it is commercially available called the TESOL 18, and that is a really effective vaccine. It blocks transmission to pigs. You vaccinate pigs, and essentially they don't get cystic sarcosis in these environments. It has, you know, from that side, it's very effective, and it has some some great utility. The, the downside is practical application. So if you talked about before, the pig population turns over rapidly in these areas. So every time you come back to a village, if you come back, we came back every four months. And every time we'd come back, you know, half the pigs would be new. The pig population would turn over. So if you're vaccinating pigs, you have to be vaccinating pigs all the time. And this vaccine also currently requires two doses. So not only do you have to capture all pigs, you have to vaccinate them twice. And, and the population is turning over really rapidly. That's the main, those are the main downsides for it. And, and hopefully someday that, um, that will be addressed and those will be improved and it would be something that would be more practical for us to introduce in our, in our strategies. What about people? Is there a vaccine for it in people? So there's, there's actually no reason to suspect or no, no main reason to suspect that that vaccine that's available for pigs now would not also work in humans to prevent people from getting sister psychosis and neurosister psychosis if they were exposed to eggs. The problem is, again, goes back to this being a neglected tropical disease and developing a vaccine in humans is an inordinately expensive, um, time-consuming affair. And essentially, the mar I think that the decisions are being made, maybe not um, directly, but as a consequence of these being neglected, that the market is not, the demand is not there, basically. The market wouldn't support the development costs. And so it hasn't been pursued. That's a shame because that would seem to be the most effective way to deal with all of this, but maybe someday. Um, in what ways do you hope your findings contribute to public health? Yeah, I think I think this is what made, motivates me and motivates others to do this work. I mean, we're motivated by, you know, seeing the consequences of disease in the places that we work. And what we really want to see is control interventions in, in place that would prevent this. This is very much in line with what um, the World Health Organization is also trying, trying to promote. So my hope is that we can take and build upon these findings showing that there are multiple effective strategies. There are many ways that you can target control interventions. And these are with tools and strategies that are readily available and actually appropriate for these um, sort of isolated areas. So there's, there's feasible ways forward. And my hope is that these um, become implemented um, into public health programs. And that's a, a large area of our research currently and, and ongoing research is working with um, government uh, side and trying to understand the best ways and best practices to implement these control programs so that they can be effective um, and sustainable, not just in the research setting, but also as ongoing public health programs. So on that note, tell us about your job and how you became interested in this particular topic. Yeah, so I'm, I'm an academic. I, I'm a physician and an epidemiologist by training. And um, I work at the Oregon Health Sciences University where I'm on faculty. My work is primarily research related. And th that means that I, you know, do the standard stuff for research. I think about study designs and come up with designs and try to get them funded. Um, again, my focus is on this, this parasite um, in particular and on with an eye towards control and developing um, ways to control transmission. And, and, and again, my motivation from that, from that comes from living in some of these countries and working in some of these countries and seeing the effect. Um, also seeing some of the effect on, on people here um, in the United States uh, during my training. Neurosister sarcosis does occur in the United States. In fact, um, it's one of the more common neglected tropical infections that we see here in the U.S., primarily um, among migrant, migrant populations. Um, and just seeing that, how the, the strength of the impact and how, how greatly it impacts people and families 
um, is what uh, made me interested um, in knowing that this is entirely preventable. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected your research? I imagine it must be difficult trying to conduct a study in another country with everything that's going on. It, it has been, um, the impact has been really hard. Um, it's drastically affected our ability to do the research that, that we plan to do. It's impacted us both in terms of, um, you know, having to halt activities because of safety issues for participants and staff, um, not wanting to draw resources away from the hospitals and um, other public health resources. We work with the public health um, agencies. So wanting them to remain focused on COVID um, and not distracted. There's also been in Peru, social unrest as a result, um, not just Peru and other places, social unrest as a result, and that's impacted our ability to do work. And then finally, what we're seeing now, you know, further down the line is supply chain issues, getting the drugs that we need um, to do the work. But all of this leads to uncertainty and a lot of adjustment um, and a lot of continued adjustment. But I think what helps is just keeping this in context and perspective. I mean, COVID is a global public health emergency, and that's where our attention needs to be. You know, certainly Sister Circosis denies this is an important problem. Um, but it can take the back seat for now. Yeah. So a little bit perspective and patience, I think, helps get through that. And on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. O'Neill. So it was a, it's a pleasure. Uh, pleasure to talk and I'm happy to, happy to do it. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the September 2021 article, Geographically Targeted Interventions Versus Mass Drug Administration to Control Teniosilium Sister Psychosis Peru, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.